Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The recent Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson that overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 has become one of the major news stories of our day. Despite her famous pseudonym, Jane Roe, I suspect few people know the real story of Norma McCovey, the uh, Dallas waitress whose unwanted pregnancy in 1969 led to a major chapter in the controversy over abortion. Joshua Prager's The Family Row and American Story reveals the woman behind the pseudonym. His book, which is published by W.W. Norton, was a finalist for this year's Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction, and it brings Joshua Prager to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on that incredible spread you got in the New York Times. I appreciate that. Um, It was exciting to see. The the chief figures in the story you tell are all Texans. Norma McCorvey, real-life Jane Roe, Linda Coffey, McCorvey's original attorney in Texas, Mildred Jefferson, the first black female graduate of Harvard Medical School and a a founding member of the National Right uh, to Life Committee, ardent opponent of of abortion, and Curtis Boyd, a physician who provided abortions before and after the ruling. Uh, We'll talk about each of them. But weren't they from varying forms of Christianity, which influenced their views on sex, marriage, abortion, and their careers? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I knew that Norma, she lived her life in Texas. She was born in Louisiana, but spent her life in Texas. And I just had a feeling that it would be nice to center my story there. And I looked for people sort of who would enable me to tell this larger story of abortion in America who are from Texas. And each of these people were from there. And Texas is really a part of the story. And religion is a big part of the story. Um, so, yes, it was very interesting for me um, to sort of look at all their lives. I mean, just to sort of pick one person right away, you mentioned Linda Coffey. It was fascinating for me to know that until 1980, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest group of evangelical Christians in America, was pro-choice. I didn't know that. And I mentioned that because Linda was Um, a religious Baptist. And it was a fascinating thing to see that the very same woman who filed Roe and um, really was the architect initially of Roe was able to sort of um, be embraced by her church and applauded for doing so. So um, that was something that I didn't know and, and, and something that I think goes to the heart of the issues that we're dealing with today namely the sort of seeming incompatibility of sex and religion. And uh, Dr. Boyd, the, uh, who performed abortions, was a former fundamentalist Christian. Yeah, he was. In fact, um, he was the top student in his high school class. He was an ordained preacher at 16 years old. He was from a family of primitive Baptists. And it was only when he um, had an experience in high school that he started sort of thinking about women and the unfairness, as he saw it, of the illegality of abortion. His high school crush had gotten pregnant, and the the young man who got her pregnant was the captain of the football team, and he was seen as sort of a stud. Um, and this woman's life was really ruined. She was made to leave school. She was made to leave the church. And that made no sense to, to Curtis, and he never forgot it, and it informed his decision to um, to become a doctor and to begin performing abortions in Texas 
pre-Row, he was able, in a sense, to sort of hold on to his Christianity. He left his fundamentalist church, but he became a Unitarian. And to this day, he's 85 years old. He is a religious Christian, even as he is also the largest provider of third trimester abortions now in our country. You don't speculate on why Texas has been and remains a key state in the legal struggle surrounding abortion in America. But what do you, you know, why do you think it is? It's, it's a great question. I, I sort of wanted to throw out all the information and sort of see what my readers think. What, what I think is obviously you have two things. You have a very large group of it's a very religious state. And then you also have many women and young women, uh, girls who are often in want of abortions. And so those two things seem to sort of lead us to where we are today. It's not a coincidence that, you know, Roe was born in Texas. It's not a coincidence that Roe, um, you know, the end of Roe was sort of written there, too. We had SB8 just last year, this sort of, you know, end run around the sort of formal applications of Roe. Um, and and obviously Dobbs was based in Mississippi. But so much of what um, of what we're seeing now today uh, comes to us from Texas. Well, you quote law professor Mary Ziegler, an expert on Rose history, is saying yeah. the abortion conflict is a tale of hopeless polarization, personal hatreds, and political dysfunction. Now, I've spent a fair amount of time in Texas, but where I've been, uh, I would have thought uh, most people would have been uh, rather in support of abortion rights. I've been to San Antonio, to Houston, and to Austin mostly. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's it's, big, Texas is a split state. It is. And obviously, you know, it's a very big state. And just like... And, and now uh, they just passed, I don't know if you saw this, but they just, uh, the, uh, the state legislature just passed uh, something that said that Texas could secede from the union. I did not see that. Wow. It does not surprise me. I mean, look, when you when you drive around rural Texas, it really does feel like you're sort of going abroad. And, you know, Linda Coffey, for example, now lives in a small town in East Texas. Um, and you have Norma's um, daughters who are sort of sprinkled about Texas. Um, and I spent most of my time not in big cities, certainly not in Austin. And you realize that, you know, our country is obviously an incredibly divided country. And you see that. You see that in Texas itself. You've mentioned Linda Coffey a number of times. She's the feminist lawyer behind Roe. But wasn't she overshadowed by her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, who argued the case twice before the Supreme Court? Yeah, that was something that I found sort of first shocking and then depressing. That really, here you have really, as I said earlier, the kind of the the woman who was most responsible for Roe was mostly forgotten. Um, and it was unfortunate that Sarah Weddington did that. And she did do this. She did it sort of knowingly and actively. Basically, Sarah was a person who loved the spotlight. Linda Coffey was a person who hated the spotlight. And they, it was Linda found Norma McCorvey, found Jane Roe through a uh, law school classmate of hers, um, a man named Henry McCluskey, who she had actually helped kind of in a as a Cyrano whispering in his ear, she had helped him argue against the sodomy laws in Texas. And she had not sort of felt comfortable to attach her name to that case. I think in part because she was gay. She is gay, I should say, and he was gay too, but she felt sort of uncomfortable with that. And then being out, that is. And then when when Roe, when the idea of challenging the 
the abortion laws um, came to her, she she did decide that she wanted to attach her name to it. It was Henry McCluskey, the adoption lawyer, who told her, hey, Linda, there's a woman who just came to my office. I've helped her already broker two adoptions. She wishes now to relinquish a third child to adoption. She does not want to, well, she actually wants an abortion, but she's not able to have one. Would you perhaps speak to her? Um, and so Norma, Norma met Linda, and Linda then introduced her to Sarah, and the three of them sort of set forth. I'll first mention um, that it's not a coincidence that Linda and Henry McCluskey and Norma were all gay. There was a large sort of overlap in the fights for gay rights and women's rights back then. And, you know, at first, Norma didn't care at all about sort of helping the women's movement. She sort of just wanted an abortion. That came later. But in terms of coffee and Weddington, what ends up happening is it's coffee who conceives of the sort of initial legal reasoning behind the suit. She says, hey, we should ground ground this, um, you know, perceived right. We should ground this right that we intend to infer um, from the 14th Amendment in a right to privacy later Others say it ought to have been grounded in equality, but she says that. She argues half of the case in the lower courts, um, and she attaches her name to it. But Sarah Weddington and Linda decide together that Sarah will argue the case in front of the Supreme Court. Linda told me because they felt that they needed someone who was sort of very presentable in court, someone who was womanly, she said. And she didn't like to sort of get dressed up, Linda, that is. And so and she Sarah also, did, by the way, uh, seems to have had a, a career in public. She served three terms in the Texas House of Representatives after Roe. She was absolutely. president of NARL, the pro-choice, pro-choice America, and also was named an assistant to President Jimmy Carter. Yeah, Roe launched had her. a career. It made her very famous. And Linda was very happy to simply see abortion legalized as opposed to being the one to help legalize it. She goes back to her little bankruptcy firm. And what's very depressing is that Sarah starts to simply say, I did this as opposed to we. Hmm. And very quickly, Linda is completely forgotten. Now, Norma McCurvey never got the abortion, gave birth during the more than nine months it took for the Supreme Court to rule that laws banning abortion before viability were unconstitutional. Uh, unconstitutional. So uh, is that one of the ironies of this story? Yeah, and it's what led me into it. I was reading an article in The New Yorker about gay marriage written by Margaret Talbot many years ago where she mentions in passing that sometimes a plaintiff is not great for the cause she represents. She mentions Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, and notes that she famously sort of switched sides on the issue, becomes pro-life later in her life, and mentions that she'd not been able to have the abortion she sought. I couldn't believe that. And I said, my goodness, that means that somewhere there is a human being whose conception led to the led to Roe v. Wade. And I and looking online, I saw that the pro-life looked at this unknown human being as a very important person. They could say, aha. Had, had Roe already been decided, you would have murdered this human being. It was no longer abstract. And I had a feeling that even though Norma had relinquished the child to adoption, that he or she probably knew who they had been born to. And so I set off to find that person. Uh, and that you be, wrote an article in 2010 about that. But that you didn't that lead you into thinking about Roe v. Wade and the whole of abortion in America, as you described it? Yeah, what ended up happening was... I didn't know where to find this person. And I ended up, I reached out to Norma. I said, would you speak to me about this? And she said, I'll only speak to you, pay me. I explained that I wasn't able to do this. This was way back in 2010 when I started. 
Um, but I then went to reach out to Norma's former partner, a woman named Connie Gonzalez, who she'd sort of been in a relationship with off and on for 40 years. Norma had just left her. Um, and when I went to visit Connie at her home in Texas, it turned out that Connie's home where she had lived with Norma was about to be foreclosed on. And she mentioned to me, Connie did, that Norma's private papers, Jane Rose's private papers were in the garage and were about to be thrown out. And I said, wow, mm. please don't throw them out. Can I have them? And she said, yes. And I shoved them into garbage bags and put them into my trunk of my rented car. And looking through them, I quickly found there was one piece of paper that had the birth date of the Roe baby, the youngest child um, Norma had given birth to and relinquished to adoption. But then as I sort of stepped back, just as you noted, I then said, wait a minute, you know, there's a lot more here than just who that person is. These are Norma McCorby's private papers. And looking through them, I saw that they wended their way through both sides of this enormous issue in the country. And I saw that they were sort of a way for me to write this much larger, much bigger story. And I officially sort of then acquired the papers from Norma. Um, those papers are now at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, um, a research library. But they, those papers led me into to the writing of my book. So McCorvey had a baby girl, put her up for adoption in 1970. Uh, but she'd largely been fallen out of the limelight by then. And uh, was it difficult to find the, the, her three children? It was, it was incredibly difficult to find them and to find the, uh, the birth fathers as well. Um, I thought it would be important to do that, you know, to find the people. And there's a beautiful quote um, written by um, uh, the constitutional scholar Lawrence Tribe in his book, a uh, clash of absolutes about abortion. He says that the only way that America can sort of ever move beyond its problems regarding abortion um, is to give voice to the human reality on each side of the versus in Roe versus Wade. And that was something that I agree with. I'm not naive. I don't think that we're going to move past this anytime soon. But I do think that the only way that a person can understand what's really at stake is if they know someone if they hear the story of someone who is sort of on the other side. And I found these people and their stories are quite moving, um, as is Norma's story. These are people who um, are, are living difficult lives. And I stepped back not only to look at Norma's life, but the life of her mother and her grandmother too, because all three generations there had had unwanted pregnancies, um, had, been, had, had been single and pregnant at the age of 17. And when you see over several generations what happens to a family and to women when they are not able to sort of have choice, it is a very difficult thing. And it has been very gratifying to me to see that people on the other side of this issue, on the pro-life side, and I do choose to use the terms pro-life and pro-choice, but they have embraced my book as well. And um, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. My guest is Joshua Prager, whose book, The Family Row, An American Story, is published by W.W. W. Norton. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned the family. You, began, you begin uh, the story on the banks of Louisiana's Atchafalaya River, where Norma was born in 1947, and tell the story of her Arcadian ancestors. How is that relevant to this whole thing? Yeah. So, yes, there were these sort of French exiles who left this 
northeastern place sort of near Nova Scotia and came to this Louisiana River back in the 1700s. And you see how they become sort of very dispossessed um, when the the Civil War ends. They lose the infrastructure. They lose their slaves. They're soon very, very poor people. So poor, one historian wrote that they didn't even notice the Great Depression. And they're come to be known sort of um, pejoratively as Cajun. Um, And when you see sort of that world that Norma grows up in, that her grandparents grew up in, you understand a little bit um, what's at stake here and how a person, it really comes down, there was a famous book written about abortion in the 1980s um, by a a sociologist named Kristen Luker. And she Mm -hmm. talks about how really at the heart of everything, it's about class. And I do think that's true. Money, access to abortion, class, religion, these are big things even before politics. I think this is really what is at the heart of the matter. And you see over and again that this sort of very um, dispossessed people are also very religious. And Norma's grandmother was Catholic. She then becomes born again Pentecostal. Her mother turns from Pentecostal to Jehovah's Witness, and then Norma comes along. And always you see that the idea that a woman can sort of control her own reproductive choice is seen as anathema to her religion. Um, And so I think by telling that larger story over the first few chapters of the book, you come to understand a little bit better how we are where we are today. Well, you mentioned that unplanned planned pregnancies had been a part of the family history. Her grandmother had a rushed wedding after she became pregnant with McCorvey's mother. McCorvey's unmarried mother, Mary Sandifer, gave birth to a child named Velma, who was given to Grandmother Bertha to raise as her daughter. And Norma McCorvey gave her firstborn daughter, Melissa, to her mother, Mary, to raise. Then she put her other two unplanned children Jennifer and Shelley, who is the Roe baby, and we'll get to her in a little while, who was born in 1970, she put them up for adoption. But you describe Norma McCorvey as having a borderline personality and a 10th grade education. You say her upbringing and circumstances imposed shortcomings on her. When did she realize that she was gay? Which led her mother to punish her, didn't it? Yeah, I, I will just say, I'll add, that happens really right around the age of 12 and 13. Her mother, who had never been interviewed before, told me before she died unapologetically that she beat Norma um, for being gay. Um, and there's a story that happens um, when Norma is 13 years old. She goes with a friend of hers, a girlfriend of hers, um, just a friend who happens to be a girl from school. They go in a bus over to Oklahoma. They go into a motel. They lie down in bed and the police are called. And the friend alleges that Norma tried what Norma told me was inappropriate things with her. Norma is um, has to appear before a juvenile court in Dallas and is um, described as a quote-unquote delinquent child mm-hmm. and is sent off to a Catholic boarding school. For delinquent from- girls. A delinquent. That's right. That's right. And what what and the reason that's also important is sex in her home and certainly sexuality. The fact that she's gay, it's sinful, it's illicit, um, it's 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 covert, it's bad. And even when Norma then sort of declares herself an atheist for a time at the age of 16 in another boarding school, she always sees sex as sinful and she begins to reimagine all of her um 
sexual sort of experiences. She tells the stories of her life um, so as to sort of change what she sees as sinfulness to being a victim. So, for example, she made up um, a story about being raped in a shower by a nun. That's right. And, and, and when, in fact, it was consensual and, and over and over and over again, even just the fact she she later says that her husband, she's married briefly at 16, um, which leads to her first pregnancy. She says that her husband um, beat her and that's why she left. When, in fact, as she confided to someone many years before she started lying about this, he had simply had affairs. And this was a way to sort of the saying that she was beaten was a way to explain away the fact that she um then did not want to even raise this child as her own um, and, and explain away, excuse me, her divorce. Um, I wanted to mention one thing. You, 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 you noted Norma's mother, Mary. Mary was fascinating to me. And I think, you know, this is the home that Norma is raised in is informed above all by the fact that, as you said, Mary gets pregnant at 17. And instead of being allowed to carry this child and raise this child, she has to, she's disappeared from town, from this tiny town along the Atchafalaya River, goes to Baton Rouge, gives birth, and then that child is taken away from her so that her parents can raise the child. And it's, everyone just sort of pretends that Mary never got pregnant. This changes her life. She becomes an alcoholic. She starts sleeping with many, many men she's serving drinks to in these little bars, even after she gets married. And this is the home then that Norma is raised in. So you see the effects um, generation after generation on, on um, you know, when there is an unplanned pregnancy that is not allowed to sort of be uh, dealt with. Well, Norma, uh, as you said, was a lesbian, yeah. uh, had hundreds of partners, almost all of them women, but she also worked as a time for a time as a prostitute in Dallas and continued to make up stories. Didn't she claim that baby Roe was the result of a gang rape? Yeah, she actually, uh, I mean, Norma lied so often that it was sort of a real challenge for me to write what actually happened. Um, what, what helped me to do so was not only finding her private papers and obviously, as any journalist would, going back and finding sort of credible you know, witnesses to every point in her life, but turning to Norma. And I ended up spending hundreds of hours with her at the, over the last four years of her life and saying, Norma, you've told a lot of stories here. You, you've lived an important life. Let's sort of get it right. And she wanted to. She says, OK, let's do this. So, for example, she's thrilled when she remembers the name of the of the man um, who you know, got her pregnant uh, when she then carried the, the role baby. You know, she was very helpful to me at the end. But, yes, she not only claimed first she claimed in terms of role that it was a gang rape. Then it was another rape. She, she made up three different stories about rape. What was interesting to me about that is the first time she lies about having been raped was after Roe. In 19, it's six months after Roe was decided in 1973. She tells this story to Good Housekeeping magazine. But the pro-life later claim when Norma confesses to the lie in 1987, they claim that that lie helped inform the Roe ruling, that, in other words, the Roe ruling was in part predicated on that lie. But that's nonsense. She doesn't lie until after Roe's decided. Now, uh, would this have been an easier story to tell if Norma had been a more sympathetic character? By the time of the Roe case, she'd struggled with drug addiction, alcoholism, and depression, attempted suicide more than once, and as we said, um, had, uh, was a constant liar, had worked as a prostitute. Um, <laughs> would you have preferred to have had somebody who you could have 
found a little more sympathetic as the main character of the story? Well, in one way, it would have been easier for me. But the more I thought about it, the answer to that is really no. And I'll tell you why. You know, Norma was unfortunately shunned um, by the pro-choice movement, the movement that she helped to sort of represent for years. Part of that was understandable. She was lying. She wasn't a sort of a credible witness. But part of it really wasn't. Even after she confessed to her lie about the rape and desperately tried to educate herself about Roe and abortion in America, they really kept her at arm's length. They didn't let her um, participate in their protests and, and marches and book parties, etc. And the reason I think that's so sad is, yes, of course, it would have been easier had they had a different plaintiff. And there was one they tried to sort of have a woman named Marsha King, who was everything normal, wasn't educated, believed a lot in the, in the movement, but she was deemed not to have standing because she was not pregnant when the case was actually brought. So on the, it would have been easier. But it's also it, what's more, what is what is more important to have someone who speaks beautifully about abortion or to have someone whose real life experience actually speaks to the importance of providing legal abortion for everyone, even a person who doesn't sort of exactly speak about abortion in the way you want. And Norma's experiences were much more at the heart of Roe and what Roe is about than than her own lawyers. To give you an example, Sarah Weddington was able to go have an abortion during law school um, when she wanted to, uh, so that so as to be able to continue her studies. And she didn't tell Norma about that, but she had had the means to go to Mexico to do that. But Norma didn't have the means. And she wasn't able to afford to fly to California where abortion was legal. She wasn't able to afford to pay the $500 fee that an unlicensed doctor she found in Texas um, who was providing abortions was charging. And I think the choice, the movement would have done much better um, uh, for itself and set aside even the fact that it would have been the right thing to do if they had been kinder to Norma and allowed her to sort of sit, sit by them um, side by side. Well, didn't Sarah Weddington uh, later say she regretted choosing Norma as a plaintiff? Yeah. I mean, if there's an unsympathetic character in the book, truly unsympathetic, it's Sarah Weddington, unfortunately, not Norma. Norma, you come. To, yes, you're right. Everything you said, she was a difficult personality, but you also understand her. And she keeps on um, changing. Yeah, she wasn't uh, a, a pro-life advocate in her later years. Uh, she said she became born again in 1995 to fight to join the fight against Roe, even though she was the cause of Roe. And she yeah. once told the New York Daily News, I'm not pro-choice. I'm not pro-life. I'm pro-Norma. Yeah, that was the truest thing she ever said. But she actually did have an opinion on Roe. She was pro-choice. And the way I know what she really believed is because she said it in the first interview she ever gave days after Roe. She said it again right after her religious conversion, even though it infuriated the Operation Rescue folks. She said it to Ted Koppel. She said it to me again at the end of her life. And what she said was, I believe that abortion ought to be legal, but only through the first trimester of pregnancy. She was somewhere in what she called the mushy middle. And it's in that mushy middle that the majority of Americans reside. I just want to say one more remarkable thing about Sarah Weddington. Not only did Sarah Weddington not tell Norma that she had had an abortion, and not only did she not help Norma to get an abortion, she was working with an abortion referral network at the time and could have flown Norma to California, even though it was getting a little late in Norma's pregnancy, she could have helped her. Not only did she do those two things, but she later lied publicly several times as to the reason why Norma did not have an abortion. She said several times that Norma carried her pregnancy to term because she wanted to be sure that she had standing. When in fact, 
the legal standing when in fact the reason was she didn't know where to get an abortion. She was desperate to have one. And the fact that Sarah lied about that, it shows to me that she was uncomfortable with the truth, namely that she and, and her co-counsel, Linda Coffey, did not help their plaintiff to get one. They cared more about the fact that she would enable them to file Roe. So there are a lot of people here who are more complicated than we would like. Was, by the way, was the yes. Supreme Court at all um, aware of, of Norma's past? when uh, they heard the case? No, all they knew was what was said in an affidavit that was filed by the lawyers. There were a few, there were a few um, sort of descriptions there that basically that she believed that the right to decide whether to have an abortion or not was a private right and that she couldn't afford to sort of go where abortion was safe and legal. But they didn't know anything more than that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My country, tis of the land of inequity of the icing. Land where my mothers cried, fought, bled, and sacrificed for rights which we are now denied. Let freedom ring. Land of dystopia, religious myopia, I mourn for thee. Behind us, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Joshua Prager. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we're discussing, his book, The Family Row, An American Story. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's... 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large and we thank you very much and return now to Joshua Prager whose book is published by W.W. Norton he's a former senior writer for the Wall Street Journal who's made a specialty of uncovering historical secrets uh, you include you once uh wrote about the sign stealing that enabled the Giants World <laughs> Series win in 1951. Yeah, we had a conversation about that, you and I. That was great. <laughs> Way back when. <laughs> yeah. You also um, revealed the identity of the only anonymous Pulitzer Prize recipient, an Iranian photographer. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously all these things are very different, but they, they have something in common. It was It was also sort of realizing, as I mentioned earlier, that there was sort of a great secret at the heart of Roe, that there was somewhere a human being whose conception led to Roe. That was what sort of led me into this story. Um, I like telling people, first telling myself and telling others that, you know what, these big historical things we think we know, they're actually a little bit different. Um, and it's good to know that big things are complicated. And, you know, we're in such a polarized time right now. And abortion is at the tip of that polarization. And even though I am firmly pro-choice, I do recognize, in my opinion, that abortion is complicated for good reason. And I think, you know, my book brings that to light. Well, how much has the conversation changed in the intervening years? For example, when South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem was asked this past Sunday about her state's abortion ban, 
in regard to the case in which a 10-year-old child abuse victims, a child who had been, I think, raped, traveled from Ohio to Indiana to receive an abortion. She said, this tragedy is horrific. I can't even imagine. I have never had anybody in my family or myself gone through anything like this. But in South Dakota, the law today is that the abortions are illegal except to save the life of the mother. How much has it changed? Enormously. It is, it is a fascinating thing, but abortion was not at all political. When, or it was, there was just a wisp of it being political. I can tell you how um, when, when Roe was decided. Um, there wasn't a, a, a Republican Democratic debate. No. In fact, George Bush, Ronald Reagan were on the pro-choice side. They had concerns about the sort of you know autonomy of the woman and 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 concerns about overpopulation. On the other side, Jesse Jackson, Dick Gephardt, Al Gore. Um, uh, all of these folks, Ted Kennedy, were on the pro-life side for various reasons. Uh, Jesse Jackson spoke about the importance of the black community to sort of resist, you know, uh, this genocide. That was the word that was used. Ted Kennedy talked about how, as a Catholic, he couldn't sort of feel comfortable about abortion. And then things started to change. You know, in 1967, pre-Roe, Ronald Reagan is the governor of California. When he signs this bill, the Abortion Therapeutic Act, I think it was called, basically made abortion legal for the, to, to preserve and protect the health of the mother, psychological health included, um, up to the 20th week of pregnancy. And that was for non-residents too. And so and that had broad bipartisan support. It, it is true, people who want to say that this isn't all Roe's fault, they are correct to point out that pre-Roe in 1970, Nixon's advisor, Pat Buchanan, writes a memo to the president saying, hey, President Nixon, you need to sort of about face on your policy of saying that abortion can be subsidized in military hospitals because, he says, about face because there are left-leaning Catholic votes that can be won. So that, that idea, that inkling had come, but it wasn't for literally almost 20 years till the late 1980s, that you start seeing abortion is just sort of this knee jerk, what we know today, Republican, pro-life, Democrat, pro-choice. What the, the, If there's one sort of huge shift, it's in 1975, 76, the National Right to Life Committee, under the helm of Mildred Jefferson, you mentioned her earlier, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, um, a fascinating woman, she says, hey, she challenges all of the presidential candidates to take a position on the Human Life Amendment, whether, in other words, the Constitution can sort of say that a, a fetus is a person. Well, when that happens, the New York Times correctly notes that the NRLC is turning abortion into a political issue. By the time 1980 comes around and Reagan wins, not only has it sort of been politicized for Catholics, but you also have Catholics having come to join evangelicals in their fight for this. It has a lot to do with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. And Ronald Reagan uses brilliantly um, abortion as a wedge issue. And so really from 1980 until today, you know, it's only grown more and more and more, not only political, but partisan. Now, Norma's family uh, converted to uh, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, yeah. What was the position of that church? Oh, my time. goodness. I mean, completely extreme, obviously, not only on abortion and homosexuality, but things like war, the transfusion of blood, no celebration of birthdays. Uh, Norma remembered she couldn't blow out any candles when it was her birthday when she's seven, eight, nine years old. And she and her brother are driving with their father um, to all the sort of 
uh, little towns in East Texas where they're handing out copies of the Watchtower. This is what informed Norma. Now, you you mentioned Mildred uh, Jefferson. Uh, you, you write that uh, her early years in the segregated South drove her to succeed, uh, but that she even had problems when she went to school in Boston and, and faced yeah. racism and misogyny there. Yeah, what was so interesting is the pro-life hold her up as one of their patron saints. Here is a woman, you know, first graduate of first black woman graduated Harvard Medical School. They say she left the heights of the medical profession to sort of cater to the unborn. Well, the truth is much more complicated than that. In reality, the reason she left the medical profession was not that she suddenly decided she cared about abortion, but rather because her career had gotten sabotaged. President Nixon. Um, had wanted to appoint her to a board in 1973, and I was able to find an FBI file. And in that FBI file, you see that for 20 years, she had not been able to be sort of certified as a surgeon. You have these very prominent doctors speaking very openly about the fact, well, of course, we couldn't sort of work with her or appoint her to various positions. She's a black woman. And so she is she is completely distressed. Um, she had been sort of a celebrity when she first got into Harvard Medical School, and she spoke always about just the power of self-determination. Basically, you can do anything you want, but she comes to see that that isn't true. Well, what led her fact, to be such a strong anti-choice advocate? She so what devoted happens, her life to overturning Roe, left her practice to argue, as you say, in, in public and television, that the United States was becoming a culture of extermination. And in one television appearance, didn't she even kind of convert President Reagan from pro-choice to pro-life? She's listening, yeah, days before Roe. She's on a show called The Advocates. And and she's arguing using sort of fetal slides to argue against abortion. Reagan sees this. He writes her a letter saying, you've convinced me. What's so fascinating, and, you know, how does she come to this position? How does she switch? Well, what happens is she is furious um, at the medical association, at the AMA, the American Medical Association, for sort of about facing on abortion. They had sort of long determined that abortion ought to be illegal, except when they say it should be okay to perform an abortion for a quote unquote therapeutic abortion. Well, then what happens is they switch just before Roe and saying, hey, folks, doctors, you need to now listen to the state laws. Um, if they say that abortion is okay, then you need to perform it. Now, at that point, she had, she was, she had gotten married to a white man and she had told that man, a man I found named Shane Cunningham, that the only way she would get married to him is if he agreed to never have children. And the reason she said we can never have children is because this life is so unfair that she couldn't bring a mixed race child into this world. And it's that same woman who wouldn't have a child herself because life is so unfair, who's now saying that every single conception needs to lead to a birth. Abortion ought never to be allowed. And I think the secret behind it all, why did she do this? She was so angry at the medical establishment for having sort of torpedoed her career that when then they about face on abortion, she becomes their biggest foe, their biggest enemy and rails against them. My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Joshua Prager, whose uh, book, The Family Row, an American Story, is published by W.W. Norton and uh, is a, uh, a finalist, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize this year. Uh, a lot of the people here 
uh, were conflicted in one way or another. Yes. District Attorney Henry Wade was pro-choice, even yeah. though he argued the case against. That was fascinating to me. His son, Kim uh, Wade, a lawyer in Texas, confided that to me with a big smile. You know, yes, it was his father's job as a district attorney to uphold the law. But privately, um, he was um, in favor of choice. And I think, you know, we see I just mentioned Dr. Jefferson, um, how ambivalent she was and how basically her actions and what she believed were sort of at odds. Curtis Boyd um, is a person who um, you know, also, he, well, certain Linda, Linda Coffey, I mentioned the religious mm -hmm. Baptist who argues Roe, and then Curtis Boyd coming from a religious home, um, initially would never think of performing an abortion, but then meets a woman, as we said, from high school, uh, knows a woman whose life is sort of um, rerouted because she wasn't able to have an abortion. All of these people, and certainly Norma McCorvey, um, obviously she goes from one side to the other. All of these people, it was experience and exposure that sort of made them sort of conflicted in the way that they were. And we've now come, if you look at the two lives of Jefferson and Boyd, they both start off really conflicted. And in the end of their lives, Dr. Jefferson feels that abortion should be illegal from the point of conception. And Dr. Boyd feels that abortion should be legal until birth. And so I think as those two doctors have gone, so have gone their respective movements. I remember those times. And uh, if you if you knew people, you knew that there was this doctor in Pennsylvania who performed abortions. Uh, you just couldn't reveal his name. Or yeah. you could go to Puerto Rico and get an abortion. So um, th that that kind of thing was totally unknown to somebody like Norma. Exactly. It was all a matter of sort of access. Almost all of Dr. Boyd's patients, the women and girls coming to him pre-row in Texas to have an abortion. Almost all of them were college students, um, as he told me. And again, you, her own lawyer, Sarah Weddington, works in an abortion referral network that was flying girls and women every Friday on an American Airlines flight from Texas to California to have an abortion. And Norma doesn't learn about this. Sarah doesn't tell her and Norma doesn't know. Norma had no money. She had no access and her only choice as she sees it, her only chance is when her adoption attorney, Henry McCluskey, mentions, hey, I know this woman, Linda Coffey, is looking for a plaintiff. Norma understands the odds are long, um, as she's told, to have an abortion, but they were not long. Actually, at that point, they were near impossible. But, but she sees she has no other choice, and she jumps in. And I'll tell you, had Sarah Weddington not then confided in a book in 1992 that she had had an abortion, which infuriated Norma, Norma coming to find that her own lawyer had had one but did not help her to have one. Had Sarah not done this, Norma never would have switched to the other side. But she then feels like she'd been truly used. And a few years later, when she meets this man named Flip Benham, an evangelical minister who sets up shop right next to the abortion clinic where she's working, she then befriends him and, and does switch over to the other side. Do we know what the Supreme Court justices thought at the time? Uh, you quote... Uh you note that a, a Gallup poll was mentioned by uh, Justice Harry Blackman, yeah. uh, quote, significant majorities of Republicans, Democrats and Catholics agreed that the decision to have an abortion should be made solely by a woman and her physician. That was very helpful to him. He felt emboldened by that. He put that clipping into his files just before Roe. What I found most interesting was that, you know, just like I think all of us 
our minds are sort of molded by by exposure to stories. And in fact, Blackman notes in his preamble to Roe, he says this. He says that people's minds are often uh, their their opinions on abortion are often determined by what he says is the um, uh, the exposure to the raw edges of human existence is his phrase. Um, what I found very interesting, he does not note there his own exposure to a story, which was not only as a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, where he was sort of seeing, um, he, um, not a doctor, excuse me, a lawyer at the Mayo Clinic, where he was seeing what happened to women um, who had tried to have abortions but uh, couldn't. They had gone to sort of illegal abortion providers and um, and were harmed enormously by that. But his own daughter, Sally, in college had gotten pregnant, um, and that had changed her life. She then had to drop out of college, uh, get married. She miscarried. She later got divorced. And this informed him enormously. And even more sort of powerfully, one of his colleagues, another Republican appointee, Justice Lewis Powell, he told his clerks a year or two later that the reason he voted in the majority in Roe, the reason he was sort of pro-choice, was because when he was a lawyer at a Virginia law firm, a young messenger boy at the firm had come to him and said, I need your help. I took my girlfriend to an illegal abortion provider. She died, and I am now wanted for manslaughter. And so this double tragedy, Justice Powell told his clerks, was what led him to his pro-choice position. And I have a feeling we're going to start seeing cases like that again really soon. Now, uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I also wanted to uh, address another thing. You found Norma's three daughters. How were you able to do that? So Norma had mentioned once in an interview with a Catholic newsletter, uh, the date of birth of her youngest child, Shelley, the Roe baby. I found that interview when I found her papers and finding her date of birth enabled me to find her. There were 37 girls born in Dallas County on that day, and it was sort of just a matter of time from there. Similarly, Wait, I did found, Shelley know that she was baby Roe? So I would never have, I, 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 I told myself, hey, you're not going to upend someone's life. You're not going to go and call her and say, hey, by the way, you were born in Norma McCorvey. So I reached out to her, her mother, the woman who raised her. And I said, I identified myself. And immediately she said, we know about Norma. And what had happened with Shelley, it had turned out that um, a tabloid, the National Enquirer, Norma had contacted the National Enquirer in 1989 and had sent someone to look for her daughter. Well, they, the tabloid did not reveal Shelley's name because uh, Shelley threatened to sue them. But what was so depressing to Shelley was she initially, when this person reaches out to her, she's thrilled, oh, my biological mother wants to find me. And then she finds out that actually Norma only wanted, she sort of had in mind a way that they could hit the road and be paid. Um, and this was very depressing to her. In fact, Norma hadn't even gone looking for her second child because she wasn't the famous one. Shelley and Norma then have a horrible falling out. Um, a few years later, she, uh, Norma says to her, um, hey, um, my, my partner and I, Connie, would like to come visit you. And Shelley says, well, I'm not so sure. She says, it'll be complicated for me to, to tell my children that their grandmother is gay. At which point, Norma, who never was able to control her words, said to her, I should, you should thank me. And Shelley says, why? She says, for not of aborting you. Setting aside that Norma had 
tried to have an abortion, mm-hmm. wanted to have an abortion. It was a horrible thing to say, and they never spoke again. One of the very moving parts in the book for me was when, as Norma's dying, Shelley is wrestling with whether or not to go visit her mother, her biological mother, at the end of her life, and she chooses not to. Now, Norma died, what, of, of about uh, 10 years ago? Uh, five years ago, five 2017. Years ago. Now, and uh, Shelley is now 50 years old. What's her That's life right. been like, and has, has she met her sisters? So, yes, the most special part of the book for me was in 2013, after I did find them, and it was not easy. Um, They all had looked in vain for each other. And um, so I felt, you know what, I will help them come together. And they did come together. It was a beautiful thing. Um, They sort of exchanged notes and talked about lives. And obviously, they had much to talk about. Not only were they like any any children sort of placed for adoption, wondering who their biological um, relatives were, but also they had Jane Roe in common, which was a very difficult thing um, in various ways for the three for the three daughters. But of course, being related is not the same thing as being family. And it turned out that it was hard for them to sort of um, forge real relationships. And in the end, one of them, Melissa, the eldest, who had most sort of been desperate for family, is not in touch with the other two, whereas the other two, Jennifer and Shelley, are do have a relationship to this day. Now, in, in the, the last minute or two, uh, I want to address one other thing that's always uh, interested me. Pro-choice advocates weren't 100% pleased with the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, what complicated that? What are you referring to? Well, they, uh, it's, it's always been a rather controversial decision. It hasn't been one where people said, okay, well, that really just... Well, yeah. I really took care of that problem. Well, you famously have, you know, Justice Ginsburg, she wasn't yet on the Supreme Court, saying, for example, that abortion, the right to abortion ought to have been grounded in equality, not privacy. Um, I think overall, yes, you know, you people were thrilled that abortion was legalized. But I think the major lesson there was they kind of then stopped um, as the pro-life over the next 50 years chipped away incrementally at this right. You know, the head of NARAL herself many, many years ago had said, hey, you know, our biggest mistake was we thought that when Roe was decided that this fight was over. I, it was a fascinating thing. I'll just add Susan Sontag wrote a brilliant essay in 1972 in which she in which she wrote that the only way that people truly come to sort of care about an issue is when it becomes politicized, when it's taken away from them. She felt that Roe in some ways had sort of mollified people. It had preserved the patriarchy. It you know, she writes about it sort of beautifully. Um, And she said only when it's taken away from them will people really sort of pay attention. I think she's right. And I think that's what we're going to see now. People who've always taken that right for granted are now going to be exercised and politicized. And obviously, this is not going anywhere, this issue. It's a tragedy now, what's happened. Um, But people are going to now be uh, much more involved. And I think um, we'll hopefully be able to sort of grab the reins and and elect people who will be who will serve their interests. How have members of the family reacted to your book? It was complicated for them. Um, I would say um, I gave the the three daughters the chance to look over the book before and let me know if there was anything that they wish changed. Only a few words here or there. One thing that was very gratifying for me was just in the last few days the Roe baby Shelley. Um, She released a statement sort of after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. She said that she thought that this was very sad. And of course, she herself would not come into being had Roe already been decided when Norma um, got pregnant. Um, But overall, 
and also Linda Coffey has stepped out of the shadows, the lawyer. She has come to sort of assert herself and, and say, hey, I did this. So that's been very gratifying. But obviously, it's also a complicated thing to tell such sort of a sad and, and complicated story. To see it down on paper is difficult. I'll just add about Shelley and all the stories that I've worked on all my life. You see people whose lives are bound to history who carry these secrets. They're very difficult. From the time that Shelley found out who she'd been born to until I wrote about her all those years later, decades passed, she felt overwhelmed by a secret, by her anonymity. She was always afraid of being discovered. And it was now nice for her to be able to sort of not carry that anymore. And so setting aside even the sort of importance, what I'd like to think the importance of the book, humanizing this big issue, it was very nice to see on a personal level um, that a person can sort of no longer be burdened by, by the secret that she was carrying. Joshua Prager's book, The Family Row, an American story, is published by W.W. W. Norton. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. It's been about 15 years since we last spoke, so hopefully we could do it again before too long. Well, write another interesting book. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Alas, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Um, you can uh, check out our Twitter feed, which is at Lopate underscore Leonard. All lowercase. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address, again, all lowercase, is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're also asking you to help us pay for our tower fund fees, our rental. We're asking all of our listeners who have had, who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and as i mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of 50 dollars or more in the name of leonard lope right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing the family row an american story by joshua prager you might also consider becoming a sustaining member uh what we call a bai buddy and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on our listeners' support. Um, we don't take um, foundation grants or, or ads. Uh, we rely 100% on uh, your, your support, which allows us to be free speech radio. Again, the number, 212-209-2950 uh, or... Go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Bob Keefe discovering his new book, Climatonomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. We'll see you then.